Hello and welcome to Making UX Work. I am Joe Natoli. Our focus here is on folks like you doing the tough, often unglamorous work of UX in the real world. My guests share their struggles, their successes, and their journey to and through the trenches of product design, development, and of course, user experience. Before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Stash Studio, a streetwear clothing brand focused on quality products with a positive message, inspired by the resilience to turn a negative situation into a positive outcome, something obviously very close to my heart for those of you that know me. The Stash mantra is that even in the darkest times, there is a light revealing prosperity. Find your light, let it guide you through the darkness. Visit stash.studio to check out their incredibly well-designed products and learn more. My guest today is Rajiv Subramanian, who describes himself as the poster child for continuous career evolution. And after talking to him, I most certainly agree with that description. From gigs in sales, marketing, software development, entrepreneurial ventures, and of course, design, one thing has remained common over his last 16 years, and that's an unrelenting appetite to understand human behavior. And as I think you'll hear, he's a firm believer in rigorous collaboration and a what-have-I-done-for-you-lately approach to his daily work. Here's my conversation with Rajiv Subramanian on Making UX Work. So, Rajiv, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, again, yeah, really, really appreciate it. Uh, understand you're busy and you know, just talking to you. And I know we had, were chit-chatting about going by your gut feeling. So let's keep that streak alive. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just glad to be, you know, just really humbled to be even uh, having a conversation with you. And I, was a, I think before, you know, it got slightly cut off was I was saying it kind of came full circle because I think it was around 2014 or 2015 is when I actually was really full-fledged, maybe it was 24, yeah, about six, six, maybe seven years ago, I decided to change, shift careers uh-huh. from, and you were the first person I, I don't know if I was, was serendipity that I just <laughs> landed on and it, uh, it, through, you know, through, through the course and, I, and I, I joined the course and the rest is, I guess you could say the rest is history. There's a lot that happened you know, before that, but I mean, it, you know, there was a, those couple of months, it was just, uh, you know, it was serendipity and I was like, wow, this guy makes it sound so simple. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let, let me dive right in. <laughs> yeah. For better or worse. For better or worse. That's what I do. I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and look, I, I honestly think that we do overcomplicate a lot of this stuff we do, yeah. uh, unnecessarily. I, I think that's true of every aspect of life. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it's yeah, obviously things get messy and you put, get put in situations, whether you know, personal, professional, and you got to, you got to figure your way out around it. You got to assess the situation. Yeah. Overcomplicating it sort of takes you away from just sort of core philosophies and core principles. And if you kind of stand by those as sort of guideposts, you know, throughout your life. And I think I've tried to do that every time I feel like I've gone astray, then I, I, I think you can, I think you can at least sort of, you know, figure it out. Yeah, that's, that's right. And it's, it's course correction. I mean, all of life and all of your career and everything you're ever going to encounter is constant course correction. Yeah. Um, as silly as this is going to sound, it wasn't honestly until, um, I don't know, I want to say it was like 10 years ago or something where I was listening to somebody talk mm-hmm. and they were talking about rockets. Yeah. Right. And I did not know this up until this point. And they said, look, when they launch a rocket, our assumption is that it just, it launches into space and it does its thing and it just gets to its destination. <laughs> and the fact is yeah. it deviates thousands of times during that journey, it deviates, it goes off course. And, and then there's a course correction. And I wow. really was unaware of, of how many times that happens wow. um, in a launch. So this guy used it as a metaphor, right? For you know, just about everything. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and I felt like my head exploded, you know, like, well, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Hey, guess what? We don't have to be right all the time. We don't have to have all the answers all yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, I really took that to heart. Yeah, you know, adapt and evolve that, you know, take that philosophy. And, um, you know, when we talk about, you know, when so many terms are thrown out there, you know, business agility or agile is is, mm-hmm. is really at the core is, is kind of saying that is, you know, it's okay to live in the gray area. And then, you know, sometimes you need to have definite goals, uh, you know, progress points where you want to get. But 
you know, how you get there is always going to change. Um, yeah. And I think that's the core of so many of these different mask names, whether it comes, you know, especially in the design field, you know, depending on what decade you're in and what every couple of years where you come, whether it's, you know, you talk about lean or agile or mm-hmm. design thinking or whatever it is, I think that the core, they're, they're all kind of getting at the same thing. They just, you know, through different methodologies. It's crazy to think that some of the core philosophies that I've had, you know, even as someone graduating from college when I'm in my early 20s to now has, has stayed the same. And many times I tried to get away from it because I thought I was doing something wrong and, you know, <laughs> trying trying different things or I need to be, you know, I need to put my foot down more. That's the answer, you know, that, that kind of yeah. thing. And yeah. sometimes it just, I don't know if it's, and maybe everyone's different, but, you know, to me, I realized you know, getting away from who you actually are is kind of the worst thing you can do for yourself. Agreed. But yeah. So it's been, it's been quite interesting. And I have, I also have to give credit or, you know, the, the other person who essentially influenced me into UX was, was my wife. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was convincing myself out of it. So tell me about that. In a long story short, I was, you know, I've been in my sort of old career, I guess, you know, I, I was actually in a lot of different sales jobs and, and marketing jobs and, and those types of things. And um, so when I left my, it was like 2013 or something, 2012, 2013, I left my last uh, job and I was talking to her and I was like, I think, you know, being in sales, it's, it doesn't, you know, I feel like it's a square peg round hole situation. I need to, you know, sort of navigate to something else. And, and she suggested, and she's been predominantly steady in her career, like total opposite of me. And you know, I've gone left and right and she's been steady. You know, she's been predominantly in the, in a, in a major consulting businesses, you know, your, your Booz Allen's Accentures and she, you know, she's right now she works at Booz Allen. So she's been steady and she offered me advice and she's had a sort of her you know ears, ears to the ground on what there's an appetite for in the market. And she was saying, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, I'll give you a couple of recommendations. You can go into data science, data analytics, that's getting big. You know, there's cybersecurity that's getting big and there's, you know, user experience, UX and design's getting big. And I was like, uh, data science. I was like, I feel like I'd have to just totally change everything I've ever done. Um, you know, cybersecurity. Nah, I, I, for some reason, I was like, yeah, what, what's UX? What's this design? And she, you know, she just mentioned it, and she started talking about it. And you know, I was like, oh, I just, it sounds too technical. I don't want to. I don't want to do it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it sounds, it sounds way too technical. And granted, you know, I, I had done you know kind of web design on the side for you know I was working for. A startup in the past and you know it was like an event planning startup and i was responsible for the website so and i was and i dabbled in photoshop and trying to actual design you know design certain web pages and flyers and email campaigns sure but i was like it just the way that she was explaining i was like oh it just sounds and, and granted I, I graduated you know i was I, from coming from a computer science person so i graduated college as computer science and i i've never done anything remotely related to that for my entire career <laughs> um life <laughs> which is, which is like, exactly yeah, life so i was like i don't want to go back to that i was like at that point it'd been 10 years into my career i'm like i don't want to you know I got out of that and I don't want to go back. And she's like, no, no, it's different. It's like, it's way deeper than that. And that's what she said. And she's like, mm-hmm. it's about human psyche and, and understanding context and, and applying them into different business cases and those types of things. And I was like, oh, really? It's not just coding or, you know, I, I, that this is my you know, ignorance speaking. Cause I was just like, I had no idea. And I, and then, so then, you know, she kind of left it at that and she's like, yeah, just take a look at it. And of course, you know, being the curious George that I am, I, you know, I've started poking at it for the next, uh, that's was sort of the the initiation, you know, the the nudge to sort of poke at it, you know, go to YouTube and, and scour scour the web and search Amazon for different books and search UX design and came up with all you know all the different terms and and that's when I actually came across you. So that's why I was like, you know, she's responsible for half of the you know and nudging me to you know take a look and actually and actually go and try to find what it's about and, and, the, and the different components of it and then and then landing on you know your course and as well as as well as others and i ended up getting some books and, and but um you know, so that's why i was like i'd be i'd be remiss to say that you know she she did not have that initial nudge because without that i probably wouldn't be where i am now you know today yeah so and i think we can all say that whether it's you know significant others or whoever we have you use a lot of what they have as, as, as influence, as lessons, you know, to your, you know, to whatever you do. So I think it works, it works both ways, but yeah, it's, it's definitely something that I have to have to put out there. So, uh, yeah. We share that. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. First of all, we, we certainly share that because I, I mean, I, I was doing work, but I was doing project work, yeah. you know, for a long time. And I, I don't really think I ever realized what I had to offer in terms of being a consultant mm-hmm. um, or a teacher 
which is kind of the same thing, right? Yeah. Uh, until same thing. My wife said to me, you know, you really should think about this and this and this and these things that you do all the time that you, you sort of become really animated and elevated and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, seem to excel at and people stop what they're doing and pay attention to it. You know, why don't you give this a little more thought, pay more attention to it? And, and I went, wow, okay. And, and you know, at this point, uh, 29 years on, it's like, yeah, wow. Without that intervention, yeah. All right, and 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 like you, there were other people as well that were when I was coming up, you know, took the time um, to talk to me about things. You know, like the the Don Normans of the world and Alan Cooper's mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. of the world, and um, yeah, you know, folks like that. Uh, and they didn't have to do those things. Yeah, you know, but a little bit goes a long way. Totally agree. And that's why, as we were talking before we started. You know, when I see folks online, some of the voices I really want on this show, when I see folks online who are sort of going out of their way to share their experience, share their expertise, and doing it in a way where you can sort of tell that the overarching concern is other people. Yeah. You know, here's here's what I've experienced. Here's what I have to offer. Um, maybe this will help you. I, I think that's tremendously important because to to your point and your story, I don't think any of us ever get where we're going or where we need to be or, or really can do all the work that's required to sort of become who you are without a whole lot of other people yeah. helping you, you know, intervening in, in one way or another at different points in your life. Totally agree. Yeah. And, you know, obviously different people can have different effects at different times, you know. Sure. She had, I was obviously being here, you know, physically there in person, you know, can and, you know, someone who's your significant other, you know, that can have a profound impact or whether it's, you know, if you're, if you're taking a course from an instructor or whether it's online or in person, mm -hmm. you know, friends, um, the list goes on and on and sure. books you read, people who you've never even seen before and maybe you've yeah. never even seen, you know, maybe, maybe only seen a couple of YouTube videos on, but you know, you, you, you follow them. Yeah. And that doesn't stop. That doesn't stop. You know, I mean, every once in a while you still read something that just blows your doors open. I mean, yeah. And I'll give a little shout out here. Like, like Erica Hall, for example. Yeah. 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 I've been telling everybody about this book and it's, it's not even that new. Okay. But the book is called Just Enough Research, right? Yep. Yep. And it, it's probably the most brilliant book I have ever read <laughs> on user research. Yeah. It's straight to the point. It's simple. It dispenses with all of this bullshit yep. that, that people inundate themselves with. And I thought, man, I mean, this is like, it's like encountering the Bible. You know, like, yeah, this yeah. Is, it's this, like, this is it. This is yeah. the truth. Yeah. Here's the truth. Forget everything else. Here's the damn truth. And I, I love that. I love that experience. Yeah. You know, I love the feeling that you get yeah. from that kind of stuff. So out of curiosity, mm -hmm. and I think you said it when you were talking, what year was this around the time when you sort of made the shift? It's like, I want to say 2013. Okay. 20, 2013, 2014, maybe. Um, okay. So you were an account exec at that point. Yeah, I was. I was full-time account exec at a uh, part marketing firm. And they also had like a cybersecurity practice and I was on the cybersecurity side, which is why, hence I mentioned, that was like one of the potential forks that I was willing to, you know, kind of go down. But mm -hmm. um and then, yeah, on, and then on the side, I was also helping a small business and helping them grow and part of you know, doing a lot of marketing. And then it, it was like in, in event planning. So I was actually, I had sort of a backstory. I had DJed for them. You know, this is, uh, I want to say, 2008 to 2010 mm -hmm. uh, when I was still, you know, I was working at uh, Verizon, the corporate, the corporate headquarters. And I was at the same thing. I was in sales and I was like, I want to do something else on the side. You know, sometimes you just need like another creative outlet, you know, just otherwise you just go insane. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whether it's, you know, different hobbies and sports and whatever. So I was like, I just need like another creative outlet. So I got into DJing just because I, I, I love music. I, I grew up on music. My parents are, you know, they came from India in the 70s. Uh, you know, they, they've always pushed, you know, always have additional activities outside of just, you know, obviously they push you in school, you know, be like, hey, you know, you should do well in school, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you, you need to have some other creative outlet. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I, I grew up and they put me in piano lessons. They put me in learn karate, do something like just use different parts of your brain. Right. Otherwise, you just, you know, things are, things are just going to get, uh, you know, overwhelming and you'll get stressed out more easily. You know, you won't be able to handle situations and all those types of things. So definitely good advice from growing up. Um, and so when I was working, you know, at you know, 2008, 2010, I was like, I need a creative outlet, interested in music, um, somehow came across, again, 
was just maybe chance, serendipity. My friends were, you know, they ran an event planning agency. You know, they did a lot of weddings. They did corporate events. They also even, they even did nightclubs and bars. And they're saying, hey, you know, we need a DJ, Rajiv. And then they've kind of known me for some years. And they're like, yeah, you've always been kind of into music. And, uh, you know, is this something that you want to do? And I was like, yeah, I'll take a look into it. And, you know, but I got interested in it. And um, so that was my creative outlet. And I would, I would do, I would do gigs and, you know, little did I know that that also helped me get out of my shell and helped me sort of understand, you know, as crazy as it may seem, you know, just understanding and adapting, you know, when you, when you have to DJ for like a, like a wedding, you have to understand audiences, you have to be able to take yeah. requests, you have to understand, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's all, it's like a, a lot of the same principles that, you know, I, I apply now, you know, it's like, who's your audience? You know, what are their expectations? Right. And how are they behaving? How are they reacting? Yeah, how are they reacting? How are they behaving? So it was, it was very interesting. You know, I made that connection, you know, only a couple of years ago and I was like, you know what? It was kind of the same, you know, but, uh, <laughs> um, nice. that, that's, that's what I was doing then. So it was a lot going on. And then, um, you know, I, I didn't think it would, I would make a career out of it. So uh, it's, it all sort of came to a halt kind of around 20, I want to say 2013, 2014, because I, I did the DJing for about two or three years. And then I said, hey, you know what? Great experience. I love doing it, you know, but I, I want to I book the DJs. I want to be part of the, you know, help part of the business and grow and, and, and be a partner with you guys and that kind of thing. So I, I did that for a couple of years on the side as well. But, you know, at some point when I decided I want to make a career change, you know, I was like, I, you know, I'm just helping them. I don't want to do that. I don't know if I can do that full time. And I was like, there's all these different forks in the road. You know, what do I do? So it was right around 2013, 2014 is when I mm -hmm. made that change. And I'm making it sound like it was a, it was a lot quicker than it actually happened. You know, the decision to make that, uh, you know, change. Sure. Um, but I had just gotten married in 2012. You know, it had been about a year, almost two years. Um, our, our first, I have two kids, but they're on the young end. One's five, you know, boy and have a girl now is one and a half. So he was born right in 20, you know, uh, 2014. Not a lot of change going on in your life, obviously. <laughs> yeah, not right. Exactly. Yeah. Changing my career, you know, you know, it's been in marriage, having the kid. <laughs> and I was like, it was all the pressures on you. So I was like, I got to make the right, I got to make the right move. You know, so I was like, yeah, man, it was a lot of reflection. Um, figuring out what I liked, you know, I'd, I'd even go back and, you know, even though I was, it was, you know, if I'm a square peg in a round hole in the sales job, but what, if I could pinpoint a couple things I liked about the job, you know, what would it be? And it, it really came down to, you know, whoever I was talking to, you know, even when I was in sales and account executive and account management, it was, it's the feeling of, you know, the outcome of user satisfaction and customer satisfaction. And I think sure. it, it always sort of came down to that. And, I'd be very, very, you know, micro analyzing situations, you know, and understanding how people thought and with the best intentions. And of course, unfortunately, the, you know, you know, sales a lot of times has the stigma of just, you know, the car salesman mentality. Yeah, of course. Gets a bad rap. Yeah. I was trying to get, I was trying to get away from that, but um, yeah, I learned a lot of good lessons in sales too. You know, it's a, uh, you know, I can't remember the name of who it was, but there was a, I came across a guy who was a trainer. Um, can't remember his name, but the name of the, the training company is called Sandler Training. And they viewed sales, you would relate to this, as a problem-solving discipline. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and I think it, a lot of times you can go down that path for, for many different types of uh, careers and whether you're in sales, market. I mean, at the end of the day, you're trying to solve you know, solve problems. And I think, you know, the way they broke it down was there's three levels of you know, human needs when you're talking to someone, uh, you know, from a sales perspective is, um, and it was almost like objections that you're going to hear, you know, the, the first is going to be uh, financial. We don't have the budget and we don't have the time. So it's kind of like a, a twofold. That's like, you'll always hear that at the surface level. Mm -hmm. And if you, and if you dig deeper, um, you might get an objection of, okay, so what is this going to look like? Or is this even technically feasible? Mm -hmm. And then if you go down even a step further, which where most of the sales are made, it happens at like a, an emotional problem solving level. Like it's, uh, if I don't get you guys, it's going to keep me up at night and, you know, it's going to ruin my next day and my weekend because, you know, our company is going to, our internet's going to be down or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. Right, um, right. Sounds an awful lot like UX, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So I, the way that they worded it, and that was like, when I was reflecting back, I was like, you know, I really like that training and whoever that was. And, you know, I want to, I want to be able to apply that same, you know, framework or, uh, you know, philosophy into something else. Yeah. And then again, and then, and then the wife came in and saved the days, but yeah. <laughs> well, and then the parallel, I mean, I love the parallel because I, I may have said this before um, here and there, but I'm, I'm always the guy in the organization when I come into an organization saying, can we get sales? 
Yeah, yeah. In, in this meeting, and, and everybody looks at me like I just grew another head. You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, well, we don't. They're they're not usually included in these conversations. <laughs> Why the hell not? Why not? Why not? Yeah. These people have to go out into the world. Yeah. And convince everyone else that you are worth their while. Yeah. How in the hell do you not want them involved yeah. in this conversation? Yeah. Okay. When they're on the front lines of hearing people's objections and you just explained it perfectly. You just gave an illustration of three criteria for, you know, acceptance or rejection. Yeah. You have to, it, it is our job to surmount those things, right? In, in some ways. Totally agree. Because uh, because that's reality. You got to, if you're working for a, a, a for sale product, then you are also required to be involved in the branding and marketing and positioning and and communication of the value yeah. of of said product. Otherwise, to me, you're missing a piece of the pie. And and even UXers and designers look at me like I'm crazy when I say that. Yeah. But I am a firm, firm believer. So to me, when I look down the, the list of everything you've done, and this seems to be a commonality with a lot of my guests, is that <laughs> as I go through it, even with job titles that are at, at surface level unrelated yeah. to user experience or, or, or design, man, the trend is there. I mean, the trend is absolutely there. We're thinking about people. Yeah, exactly. We're working with people. We're trying to help people. Yeah. We're trying to serve people. Yeah. I mean, you got this stint as, you know, co-owner and director of design of, of this bar lounge concept. You talked a minute ago about saying, well, you know, I really want to be in a position where I'm booking bands, booking bands in and of itself. And I, I grew up playing in bands. And I ran a record label for a while as well. Wow, yeah, 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 that's right. It, the same thing. Yeah. yeah. You have to make those decisions on an informed basis, which is who's coming, what do they care about, what moves them, what motivates them, what's going to get them out of their houses, yeah. you know, versus curling up with a good book or a movie or, or, or their significant other or whatever it is. Yeah. To me, it's all the same stuff, man. It is. It is. And it's just, it's a different flavor. And even, you know, when I was the bar lounge, you know, cabin, that concept, I mean, you mean coming up with a concept, but then I remember... When I could, and it was also intersecting like right when I was learning about UX and even user research and because it was 20, uh, we opened in 2014 and it was 2013. Again, this was something that I had done on the side, but I would, <laughs> it sounds kind of crazy because it sounds almost, uh, yeah, I wasn't trying to fool anyone, but I would, you know, because people wouldn't know who I am, you know, on the actual nights that were, you know, kind of light, not that many people there, I would actually just walk around and just start having conversations with people because mm -hmm. I mean, you're essentially just having conversations in context about it. And I would, yeah. and I would sort of weave in and I'd be like, Hey, what do you think about this place? Now that, that kind of stuff. I mean, I wouldn't just make it obvious. I would try to weave in that conversation. I mean, they don't know who I am. They just think I'm some, you know, random, random Joe. They think I'm, <laughs> you know, minded like them. <laughs> Under, undercover user research. I love it. <laughs> exactly. But they would give you, you know, honest feedback. Oh yeah. You know, the, the, I think it's just got too many mirrors over there and it's kind of this too much. The, the light is too blinding. And, you know, you, you start doing that a few times, you get some feedback and you kind of go back to the, you know, the rest of the business partners and you're like, Hey, you know, it seems like an overwhelming theme of, you know, we got two mirrors here and there's not enough space over here. And mm -hmm. everyone seems to be, you know, congregating over there um how, you know what can we change you know to make it a better experience and that kind of thing yeah. so it was um it was very it was it, and i felt proud of myself afterwards when we made the changes and you know people were given their love on yelp and all this other stuff and i was like i use user research for this you know like <laughs> I <was happy. laughs> and i did it but yeah so it was uh it's very interesting but i mean yeah to get back even even for the, the, you know, the sales, it was, if you're not aligning with sales, it, it, to me, it doesn't, I mean, that's such a big part of the end user experience is if there's a gap between what's, you know, sort of designed, whether it's a, a, a service, a product, an interface or whatever it is, and, and what sales tells and, and you know, sells, if, if there's a big gap between that, you know, it, it could be in an overpromise and under delivery type of situation, or, you know, mm -hmm. maybe it's the, maybe it's the, maybe it's vice versa. Maybe it's a, maybe they undersold it and, you know, the actual, when it was actually designed and, you know, they landed on some sort of feature or some sort of benefit or something that they were not expecting that they were not sold on. That was a surprise to them. It was a, you know, and that's in that case, that's great. But I think if there's that gap between what the sales people are selling and what you're designing and there's no alignment on that, then yeah, I totally agree. That's going to affect the end user experience. And yeah. most of the time I've seen it affected in a negative way. Well, it's, it's interdepartmental as well. I've seen that plenty of times where you've got a customer support department, right? Yeah. And, and then you've got sales and obviously you have product design and development. I can't tell you how many instances I've seen where sales is is literally not 
pushing or, or even talking about a particular feature because it's not considered one of the, um, let, let's say, uh, um, I don't know, a best practice or an industry leading thing, or it's not sexy enough or whatever the reason is. Mm-hmm. At the same time, customer support is fielding request after request after request for a period of eight months <laughs> yeah. because there's a feature that exists that solves this problem and nobody knows about it. Yeah, exactly. And support is saying, well, if you go here and do this, you can access this. And people go, are you kidding me? I didn't even know that was there. So now you, you've got something that people obviously want and think is lacking. Yeah. And what we found out is that in a lot of cases, they were talking publicly about the fact that it was lacking and it was there. Yeah, it was there. for. The- <laughs> okay? And because of the relationship with, with the reps on an ongoing basis, nobody was talking about it. The sales reps were like, are you kidding me? How do we not know this? Now, that's a significant breakdown in communication inside the walls. Yeah. And the reason I bring it up is number one, just to illustrate your point. And number two, to say that as UX folks, our, our purview a lot of times has to go wider than just what's in the product itself. Agree. Yeah. You have to figure out where those gaps are inside an organization because sometimes that is the cause of user dissatisfaction, you know, or or a drop in use or people jumping ship to go to a competitor or whatever it is. Yeah. I totally agree with you. I think that's also like the, one of the biggest challenges of good UX designers is that you have to get as down to the specifics as a you know, micro interaction that a customer service rep or a end user dealing with Yeah, all the way up to the very top in terms of the dollars and cents, the time, the budget, the resources that the C-level has to deal with. Yeah, And it takes time, you know, to learn how sort of everything affects each other, the interdependencies between the departments, you know, it, it's... I think that's one of the biggest challenges you see is that sometimes, you know, when you start and I'm, I'm no exception to the rule. When I started, I started at a very, you know, siloed mindset in terms of this is what UX is. I must take this and package it up and present it, you know? Yeah, it's normal. And, you know, you obviously learn through, through a lot of uh, objections and denials and, you know, whys and, uh, you know, show me's then it's, it's way more than that. Um, I think you talk about this a lot. I think you talk about it's like the small wins, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the, forget that movie where it's Al Pacino's the coach and he's talking about, you know, the inches. Inches, right. And it's literally thousands of those things. Yep. And constantly before you can even have any sort of, I would say, influence in terms of equating to, you know, a bigger win, you know, those small, 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 small wins. And I think that was that was one of the biggest lessons that I learned is that yeah, you, I kind of knew it on surface and I'd be like, okay, it's a small wins, you know, but it's not just like two of the small wins or five of them or 10 of them. It's, it's hundreds, hundreds of them. Yeah. It's hundreds of them, a thousand of them constantly. You know, it's uh, sometimes I go by the phrase and I, I use this in my sales days was persistence without annoyance. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to persist and push and, and ask. And, and then when you sort of sense that shred of just yeah, I think I'm pushing my luck. Let me back off for a day or two, and, and then I'll go. I'll go right back at it. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my biggest aha moment of realizing, wow, this is just this is sort of a, a new thing, and it's it's up to us to sort of convince and influence the stakeholders, whether it's your boss, whether it's the you know the engineers, whether it's a C level suite, and it's a different language to each of those people. So it's it's almost like trying to do that. You know, those quick wins multiple different ways, multiple different times, you know, over the course of however long your engagement is, whether, you know, sometimes you got to squeeze it in within a, if it's a year, you know, for example, for me, it's a, whether it's a year contract or something, or if, if you have a longer time to do that, then that's great. But you know, these things take time. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's almost all small stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of it is small stuff and the wins aren't necessarily small. Sometimes that, that small stuff produces something huge. Yeah, but I think I think you miss a lot of opportunity if you're constantly looking at some large scale change or large scale overhaul or like you know all this has to be rethought and reimagined. And <laughs> I think it's good to get into the habit of even when it's a client. Um, and I know you've done contract work, so you know what I'm talking about. Even if the opportunity is there, and you think, okay, this is probably 12 months worth of work. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like God, this dude. Should I should I open up this you know can of worms or not? You know, you almost, you almost don't want to say it, but but yeah. um, the fact of the matter is, it may not be necessary. And I think there's greater longevity for for you and your career as well if you focus on impact as opposed to scale or size. Agree. Yeah, and I I, I think it's almost like if you can effectively even start planting the seeds 
in different people's heads. It's almost like like that movie Inception. It's like, you know, getting down to that level and influencing, you know, getting down to the core level of what they actually believe in and why and what motivates them. And, you know, how do they get to this point? It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of patience. And a lot of times I think, you know, and I've seen it happen with even other colleagues and they they get fit up, they throw their hands in the air and they're like, I had a conversation and, you know, I had multiple conversations and this person just doesn't get it. I mean, I... Yes, there does come a time where you just you do have to throw your hands in the air and be like, you know, maybe that's not the right person to talk to, or maybe it's going to take sure. longer than I thought. But um, it's as small as taking the developer out for coffee, you know, for the, in in the first week, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, connection, conversation, leveling with them. Yeah, and I think those are the things that you know aren't. It's never taught in any course. It's never taught in any training. No, it isn't. Life teaches you those things. You know, it's a. It's interesting because it's you know some people are just much easier to convince, and some are just some are not. But that's that's human nature. That's the nature of especially being UXers dealing with, you know, the whole variety of internal and external audiences that we have to you know sort of design the experience for it. But yeah, given that, okay, you've. Like I said, you've, you've obviously, you had a period where you did some contract work and then you moved towards being an employee. Yeah. Is there any difference in both roles in terms of, I don't want to say the scope. I can't think of the word to be honest with you, but the degree to which you're dealing with internal and external pressure. I mean, does that, does that ratio change? Does the, does the volume on either side change? Um, Is one better or worse? I mean, I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, to me, I, I made that switch, you know, I, it was, it was purposeful that I wanted to do, you know, two or three different types of contract work. Um, I had just worked at an agency for, you know, in 2015 and, you know, I had a really good experience there. You know, they, they had their departments down pat. They had developers, they, you know, they separated UX designers and designers. And, you know, I mean, it was comparatively when I went back and started doing the contract work, you know, the sort of level of design maturity was totally different than obviously being at a, you know, a design agency. Mm-hmm. But that experience at the design agency sort of pushed me to sort of, I want to learn this at a deeper level and pushed me to go, you know, get my, get my master's, which is a, a great program, by the way, again, sort of mirrors a lot of the things that, you know, when you talk about when you did your design degrees, you know, at Kent State, it was some of the same thing. It was a problem solving discipline. It was understanding humans at the core level and marrying that with business context. And I think it was very, very helpful. And from there, I purposely wanted to go, you know, after I got after I got my master's, I was like, okay, let me get the lay of the land for, you know, before I just go in there, commit. And cause I almost expected, I'm going to go in somewhere and just be like, oh my God, what, what's going on? You know, like <laughs> I, I felt like this is what I'm hearing around the industry is everyone always says, you know, the yeah. going to organizations. So I was like, let me just take it piecemeal at a time. Let me do a, you know, a couple of contracts, two, two or three different contracts um, work. And so it was more of, let me get my feet wet type of thing before I actually, you know, assess and dive in into something that I want to do full time. Uh, but to answer your question, it really depends on the organization because, you know, some experiences I had, you know, they treat contractors like the redheaded stepchild, you know, it's a, sure, they don't, sure. you're not in any of the meetings and, you know, they just kind of you know, command and control. And so it's much harder to have any sort of influence or say into what goes on. It's almost just like, hey, we contracted you to do this work, to do X, you know, we didn't ask you to do X plus one. So, right, sit down and do it. <laughs> yeah. So um, even in those instances, I still tried to push the envelope, you know, because I was like, even if I leave after, you know, one year, however long this contract is, at least I want to try to plant some seed and just tell them, almost give them like a, a, a I don't want to be pres- too prescriptive, but like a warning or just like, sure. a, if, if you do not do it this way, you know, these are the potential outcomes that could happen. And sort of kind of leaving it there, knowing when the contract is winding down and you know, I can try to give it my all and hand over all the work that I've done and sort of walk away. But, um, which is, which is the right way to do it. Yeah. You know, it's the right way to do it. I I say this to to younger folks all the time, just because you're in a very well-defined, let's say, or somewhat constrained role does not mean you can't volunteer the things that you see and observe and that you think are important. Exactly. It doesn't mean that people have to accept it. Okay. Or, or even listen to you. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) It's still worth saying. It's absolutely worth saying. Yeah. I was in one of my contracts was in, in again, large health. It was care for blue cross blue shields. I mean, massive, massive organization. And I was just yeah. you know, one contractor in one, you know, one of the programs. And, you know, when I say programs, it's almost like a separate arm of the, it's like its own company. You know, it's like a, cause it's just so massive. And, and, 
you know, they had the best intentions. They were trying to, you know, hire UX designers. They were trying to adopt agile practices and they had the right intentions. But I think, you know, going in there is just, it's a culture shift. It's, it's, it's mentality. People don't know what you do. You feel like half the time you're, you're sort of justifying your existence, you know, being there. Yeah. Um, so, so what do you do? Oh, you, you don't, you don't do, you don't do, you know, you don't, you don't do front end. You don't do, you're not a graphic designer. So, <laughs> What's your purpose? Yeah, yeah. So, so what do you do? You know, it's like that office space. It's like, you know, <laughs> that yeah, area. Yeah. so what exactly do you do here? You know, and I'm like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I think half my job is trying to justify my job, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and it's like, you know, it, it's the people that didn't hire you, you know? So they, they have, they, they had no say in you being at that, yeah. being at the table with them. Um, so it's kind of like that. Like it was there, there was a lot of that for sure. How'd you deal with it? Uh, I, I dealt with it in the in the most positive way I could. It's in, if they ask that question, you know, kind of what do you do? I would try to just draw that Venn diagram of the you know, the business, the technical, and the user, mm-hmm. and try to say, you know, even though I'm mostly on this user side, I'm trying to make sure that whatever decisions that are made at the business level and the technical level also you know, help satisfy end user needs. And there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of work that goes into that. There's a lot of collaboration that goes into that. Oh, by the way, these are some of the few activities and types of things that we do. Because when they ask you what you do, they really want to know what deliverables do you provide? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, right. What's being produced. Uh, Which is unfortunate, which is unfortunate. But I mean, that's that's sort of, that's the reality. So if you're unable to tell them about, you know, what unique deliverables that you have that no one else has, then you're not of any value. Yep. Which is unfortunate, but that's that's just a starting point. So I think that was just a starting point of getting that conversation going. And then I would say, like I did, that the small things of, hey, look, look, let me take you out to lunch. And then you start talking about it, and you know, poking in, and you kind of got to get down to the to the human level and find commonalities. And then because they're the ones that are gonna, if they've been there, especially in the organization for a long time, they're gonna they're going to go bad for you if you need a favor or if, sure. you know, if you need someone to cover your ass or something, you know, that they're the ones that are going to do it. So to me, it's, that's part of the job. And, you know, Hey, that's okay. That comes with the territory, especially being a UXer in those environments, maybe a half your job or a third of your job is convincing the people that you're working with that you should be there. But I think once you cross that bridge and, you know, that relationship is a little bit better then I think you can focus on, the messiness of UX a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's accurate. I mean, I think that's accurate. I don't know that that need for justification ever goes away, especially if you're working in-house. Yeah. Even as a consultant versus a contractor. Yeah. There's always going to be, I, I promise you guys, there's always going to be somebody in the room who's looking at you like, okay, what is your purpose for existing? <laughs> you know I mean? We were here before you were. Exactly. Yeah. We seem to be doing okay. We, right, we do this every day without you. Who the hell are you? Yeah. I, so to your point, I'm really happy that you said that because I think that is part of the job. It is. Yeah. Like it or not, you know, and, and it changes to different degrees, obviously, depending on what you're doing and who you're doing it for. Yeah. These are the types of challenges, again, like you said, no one, no one tells you about it. You kind of have to go and deal with it. Um, yeah. And even after you get past that phase and you deliver something like, you know, for example, I, when one of my contracts, I, I was lucky that you know, they sort of almost accepted me and you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, UX yeah, yeah, it provides value. And even the tech, I think everyone was sort of aligned. So I didn't, it was almost like I had to skip a step. But then, as you said, you have to continue to do it. You know, you come up with a journey map or you come up with the, you know, you do the research and you come up with a persona and and then the developer walks into the room and says how this ever be useful to me <laughs> and you just like yeah you know, your eyes just glare like a yeah. like an animal looking at an oncoming car you know? <laughs> deer in the headlights yeah, exactly <laughs> uh i'm just like well i was not expecting you to say that you know but uh it's a good point how does this actually even help them do their job better and if you cannot answer that question you, you just waste a lot of time, you know? Right. What's its purpose? Yeah. If, if nobody's going to use it, if nobody's going to utilize it um, in any way, then why are you producing it? Yeah. So, so that was also a wake up call to be, just be like almost, you know, focus all of my efforts into something that I know that's going to be not only useful for the, you know, whoever the, the end user is going to be, but obviously everyone internally, stakeholders, and how are you going to explain it to them? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's valuable in different ways to different people inside the organization. You know, it's it's someone from marketing is going to say, yeah, I love, you know, make as many personas as you want because we love that. You know, yeah. Because marketing's had it for years, you know, but the developer or an engineer say, I, 
how will this you know change the way I do my job? <laughs> and you have to sort of explain it into different ways. So that's there is a you know messiness. So even though you've come, even though you've justified your existence, you haven't you, know, you haven't justified your output. So <laughs> right. So given the fact that okay, you, you get to a point in your career where, where you realize that that's necessary. Like this story about you know the developer in particular, where you sort of have a moment where like oh okay, I never really thought about that, but um, I guess I should. And we've all had it. So at this point in your career, how do you go about making sure that you're aware of what everybody needs and what's important to them and what isn't um, and what they're willing to use and um, give their attention to? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think um, what I learned is, you know, you have to do as as much research and fact finding and insight finding for the end user as you do for the people that are around you. A lot of that, you know, I would get called maybe maybe it was wasted work maybe it wasn't I mean I tried to present it in a, in a lot of different types of angles you know for example giving the example of you know personas to the developer you know why is it helpful mm-hmm. you know that could have been avoided if I just had a conversation of being like this is the different type of work that you know I do once you get to that level how would any of this benefit you would any of this benefit you and how can I make your job easier that kind of thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if I had that conversation earlier rather than after the fact you know, it avoids a lot of wasted effort, wasted work. And so, you know, now my mentality and even, you know, my, my, my previous engagement too, I came in with the mentality of, you know, it's almost like you just got battered down, you know, it's like contract after contract, you know, it's like, you're telling you first you had to justify your existence. Okay. Your, your existence is justified. Now you have to justify your output. Okay. Now what, you know, and now, now that you've justified your output, now you actually have to, you know, start influencing people that, you know, this is, you know, when product decisions actually have to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a whole other level of how do you prioritize things for the end user, you know, when there's a whole host of other priorities, uh, for, you know, for the business and from uh, from the technical side of the house. Yeah. So yeah. that's like, you got to take the punches, you know, and you got to keep drudging along. And you know, it's always something new. And what I think I've learned is it, it's never going to, just stop no there's always going to be a new challenge and you know i think i may have made the mistake earlier where when i first started that hey i I beat this challenge now everything's good nope i beat the next challenge now everything's good nope it's always going to be something new (laughs) and i think i was actually you know spoiled unfortunately in working at a you know at a design, you know, digital design agency as my first experience in UX sure. and then going to all these large, you know, huge organizations. Uh, one was healthcare, then government, you know, then it was a big, big, big real estate, real estate. <laughs> you took on, two, you took on two big ones too. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like the ones that everyone told me every UXer was like, no, 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 don't. You know? <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Where, where can I have the most difficult experience? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, healthcare, definitely. Yeah. Government. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's where we're going. Exactly. So that's what I did. It is good though, because I mean, all the things you're saying, are absolutely true. And I think the sooner in your career that, that you learn those things, the less heartache you have afterward. I mean, you just said a minute ago, it, it never goes away. Yeah. Well, yeah. Those competing priorities never stop. I mean, a business is made up of all sorts of things and there's pressure in every one of those areas. Yeah. And your piece of it is only one part of that. So it's like, well, yeah, okay. We Even, even if you're in a room where everyone's or, or in a company, let's say where everyone's like, yeah, absolutely. We totally agree with that. It's terribly important, but we have to do all this stuff and we got to figure out like what to do first. Yeah. You know, how does your thing affect my thing? And if, and if we do yours, does that mean I don't get to do mine? And does that mean right. that we missed this target? Or, I mean, there's, there's just so many dependencies. Yeah. So I, I think it's extraordinarily valuable. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I think <laughs> UXers out there, this is not, it's, it's not, we're not trying to tell you don't do this. You know, I mean, yeah, this is, yeah, this yeah. is part of the job. And, um, I mean, I think the important thing is remaining positive and realizing that you, you are making a difference, even if you may not see it. Mm. Because sometimes, just because you don't see, you know, a lot of times with that contract where you left, you, I don't know how things are you know, going on, but maybe some someone there who you developed a good relationship with stayed and was a full time employee. You get that message, you know, six months later, and be like, hey, you know what, you know, things are, you know, things are really starting to get a little bit better here. You know, they're hiring, hiring more, and I think they're starting to see the light. You know, you see, you get those type of messages, or, or maybe you don't. But I mean, I think as long as you've 
stay true to yourself and the principles and what you believe. You can take the punches and know that it's going to it's gonna help in some way, shape, or fashion, even if you don't know about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that should be encouraging. I think at least, you know, for those in our field where it's just very tough to see, you know, we don't see things through the end. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know what the result was. You don't know what the result was. Um, you know, you had an intended result and you expected a result to be X and you, you hope that it got as close to that you know, as you would want, but you may not know about it, but which is okay, which is okay. Um, and I think that's also like a lesson I've taken with me too, is that I'm not going to know it, but Hey, I tried my best and I'm confident that, you know, whatever I brought to the table helped the organization. I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in that point because I, I know that a big part of your job right now, at least it seems to be, there's a lot of research involved there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, research is, is kind of like a black hole that sometimes the deeper you get, <laughs> yeah. the more that, the more that you find it. And to what you're saying right now, you don't always know what the outcome of all that, that digging is. Yeah. So how do you... I guess if you can give me any sort of examples or stories or, or, or anything, you know, how do you remain positive in the face of what feels like a long slog where, where you sort of never know where any of this stuff ends up or what happens with it or what the, or what the outcome is or what its value is, I guess, is what I'm getting at. How do you, how do you deal with that and maintain your sense of, no, I believe in this. It's important. Um, I want to stay positive. Yeah, no, it's 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 a, it's a really good question. I think it. I think different people would respond to that differently. I mean, there is a little bit of a follow up. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and say you know I I walked away and then never talked to anyone that you know it, even if it was a contract and you know, I that I never talked to anyone in the organization again. No, obviously you want to keep relationships and keep the network going and you know you want to mm-hmm. find out how things are are done. You, you sometimes you're never going to get the tangible you know maybe the the quantifying numbers or uh, it really depends on what do you want to hear? Do you want to hear that the drop-offs uh, decreased? Do you want to hear that revenue for that program increased and user satisfaction increased? I mean, I don't know. It really depends. For me, it's more of just, I've kind of been like that. I've had a, I think sales has taught me to have a thick skin when you knock on doors and try to sell five cent a minute long distance service early in your career and you get rejected 98% of the time, it's a, (laughs) you, you realize that you just got, you have to have a thick skin. So I think, uh, you know, I would say, you know, maybe, you know, it depends on the person, but for me, you know, not knowing is okay. Um, you can do your follow-up and find out as much as you want. Um, not knowing is okay, but I think it's, it also comes down to just confidence in yourself to know that you did whatever that you could. Yeah. That's how I sort of deal with it. Because if you don't have that and you, you, you get anxiety and you get scared about the, you know, the unknowns, how, how do you ever think you're going to deal with, you know, something when you go into a new organization for a new job or a new contract? So you, you have to believe in what you do and you have to believe that it's going to be for the best. And I, I think that's that's something that you have to carry with you for your entire career because, as you said, you're going to be knocked down. And you're not sometimes you're not going to be there, you know, forever in that organization. So you have to have confidence in yourself that what you're doing is right. And I, I, don't, I don't want to take that to an extreme because then you then you go into an organization being like, what I'm doing is right, and you know, I'm, and I'm not saying that is. Um, no, I don't think you are. I don't think you're saying that at all. I think we need, needs to be a very judicious confidence. <laughs> well, I think you said it perfectly. Not knowing is okay. Yeah. And that, that's really it. Yeah. You're not always going to have certainty. I mean, in, in anything you do, think about anything that happens in your life. Yeah. Right. Are you ever hundred percent certain? I mean, you're a parent, you have kids. Right. Yeah. You're not, you're not sure. Right. Is are, are, are you, do you, do you go through your day as a parent being absolutely certain in your capabilities and that you're <laughs> exactly <laughs> your yeah. kids the right thing? I mean, and the older they get, the more that challenge exists. So I really like that. I mean, I think that's accurate. Yeah. Not knowing is okay. It has to be. Yeah, that psychological principle is that, you know, are you a black and white person or are you a gray area person? Mm-hmm. You know, there's pro, there's pros and cons to both. If you're a black and white person, you're very decisive. Things get done. You see things clearly. Decisive actions are done. But the con is how do you deal with situations where you don't know something, mm-hmm. where you make a wrong decision? You know, vice versa, if you live in the gray area, sometimes you're indecisive. You kind of poke and prod at things for a long time. You're not really sure. Is this right? Is this wrong? You know, should I try this? Should I not try this? And I think those two camps can learn a lot from each other because I think living in sort of the unknown is totally okay, but you don't want to take it to the extreme and be indecisive and not be confident in yourself and vice versa. You don't want to be black and white and this is it. And I'm stamping my foot down without actually adapting and evolving 
just because you don't know, you know, the situation entirely. Certainly. I try to be self-aware of the situation and, you know, which side of the camp is makes the most sense at that time. Yeah. And I think that's right. You know, I mean, there, there are going to be times where you're, you're certain you feel like, you know what, I've seen this before. Yeah. I know what's happening here. We got a lot of evidence that suggests this, 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 and this, and here's what I think it is. Yeah. And there are going to be other times where you're just going to have to say, I don't know. And I think we need to find out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's a, the, that scene from the, that pursuit of happiness, the, the Will Smith movie where he's saying, you know what? I may not, I may not know how to do something, but I'll tell you what, I'll find out how to do it. And that's, I think that's more important. Yeah. That's the work. That's the work. Well, we are uh, just about at an hour, so I would to wrap this up. Okay. Although I could probably do this forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, it's, it's it's it's. I mean, it's amazing talking to you. I feel like you only asked a few questions, but everything's just dovetail into a million different life stories, which is yeah, incredible, right? Like that. And that's what I mean. You know, it's an hour format, and I always feel like, geez, I mean, we I could do this for yeah, all day. <laughs> I could do this for two hours. Even. I know. Um, but I traditionally ask people some hot seat questions just because I think it's it provides some interesting insight into them and their character. Um, sure. So let's let's do that. Sure. Now you talked about music earlier, mm-hmm. and these are pain in the ass questions. I get that, but <laughs> your favorite musician or a band all time hands down no contest favorite musician of a favorite band is probably a band called a, a tool uh-huh favorite um musician <sighs> chris cornell probably that's mm. one of my all-time favorites rest in peace yeah. Yeah, two two incredible choices <laughs> yeah. tell me a little bit of why in both cases so tool i think um just because I think it reminds me that you're still able to carve your own path, carve your own unique path, but still remain relevant mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and do what you love. Cause this sort of remind me that, you know, they've incredibly popular, obviously for many years for since 1993 or something, but they've always had their own lane, mm-hmm. um, been a little bit different yep. and, and, and they're okay with that. And they're, you know, almost not sort of not willing to succumb to try to, do something conventional to please you know people chris cornell uh one of my all-time favorites from from the sound garden days and then from when he went and then audio slave and then he went solo and yeah he had a lot of other projects um just an incredible powerful recognizable voice mm-hmm. and you know a true rock voice if you will um yeah power and range i mean unbelievable yeah exactly oh, yeah and range unbelievable range and yeah so i think it's sort of related to the first is that you know having your own voice but it's also okay to you know stand out here and there for the good yeah you know display your talents proudly um, and you know be confident because i think that's i think chris cornell was true to himself and true to his uh again amazing vocal talent and very unique vocal talent and i think uh sort of having those two things you know having your own lane but uh yeah. And being loud, proud, and bold about it is, is totally okay. And incorporating so many different directions. I mean, both of those artists. Yeah. Wide range, wide, wide range. Yeah. Of stylistic influence, of, of exploration with, with melody and harmony and song arrangement and structure. Yeah. And both vocalists even, you know, have explored a lot of different sides of their voices. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and have kind of done what they wanted to do, I mean, yeah. Cornell to me was was is the was the entire package. Incredible songwriter, gifted vocalist, gifted instrumentalist. Yeah, um, and he just had a sixth sense about making stuff work, no matter what direction it went in. And not to mention the unbelievable emotional wallop yeah. that both of those both of those artists packed. Total, like one hundred and fifty percent into everything. Yeah. God Almighty. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you do that. My first concert was was a was it was a Tool concert. It was back in two thousand and two <sighs> or something. It was in, I was in college, and I was just like, my goodness! Like you just saw, you, you just looked around, and everyone would just. At one point, I remember everyone just had their fists up in unison. It was like, you know. Then there are other bands, you know, in that concert too. But I was just like, these people live, breathe, and love Tool, and that they don't care what anyone else thinks. You know? Right. It's like, <laughs> right. And you got to have some serious belief in what you do. Yeah. Like when I saw them, um, it was a million years ago as well. But but I remember they started out with one of their, and I can't remember what album it was from. 
but they extended like a five minute song into like 12 minutes because the, the, the build yeah. <laughs> into it at the first song of the set. Okay. When, when expectation is high and this was a festival, okay, yeah. so crowd is, you know, certain people there to see certain bands. So you're taking a huge risk. They do like this ridiculously slow, subtle, 12 minute build unbelievable yeah and it takes like three minutes to get anywhere recognizable <laughs> only they can do that yeah, i feel like yeah it's uh they have those slow builds and you're just you're waiting but you still want to listen and it's 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 incredible yeah and in a festival setting okay you've got thousands probably thousands of people and everybody's collectively holding their breath paying attention yeah unreal yeah it's, it's unreal it's incredible i mean they're they're, they're the only ones and you know they have they have 10 15 minute songs that's like a it's, like a, it's, it's normal now. i mean for them it's normal I mean, and it's not for everyone i'll tell you that it's some people you know, yeah right right you know, when i was when i first listened to them at the concert at that time my friend he was like a, a blink 182 fan and all their songs were two minutes long yeah two and a half minutes <laughs> and he was like i cannot he's like anything longer than two and a half minutes i lose interest and i was like what <laughs> how's that possible? yeah but all right, so let's stick on the music track for a second there, because uh, uh, this is one of my favorites too. You're on the, and I ask this all the time. I feel like I should change up these questions, but I love them so much. <laughs> You're on the proverbial desert island, right? And and you somehow managed to have electricity on this desert island. I don't know. You've you've invented something. I don't know what it is. Anyway, one album you can have with you. What is it? One album, and that's it. That's that's your life. Um, that's right. Only one for the rest of your life. Uh, I <laughs> man, this is tough because it's like there's so many. Exactly. I don't. I, I, I don't. I don't want to go down the route of you know compilations or best. <laughs> that doesn't count. That's right. No cheating. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think it would. I would totally be okay with. Again, I have to go. I have to go tool just because the songs are so long. I could probably just see a million layers in each song after I listen mm -hmm. to it over and over again. Mm -hmm. I could pick any one of their albums, but it would be in. Then not the most. They came out with one last year, but the one before that was in like two thousand five, two thousand six, and it was called 10,000 10, Days. Yeah, ten thousand days. Yeah, um, it just hit me. That hit me. Even though I love listening to their older stuff, I listened to that probably the most, and I still listen to it to this day. And my only gripe was that I could never play any of any of their songs when I was DJing. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it would be 10,000 days. Yeah, that would be because there's just so many good ones in there. Um, yeah, there's a lot there. And they're all like many of them are long songs. And that, that one I could listen to for I still listen to it to this day. And I would have been totally OK, even if even speaking as a fan that if they never came out with another album, because I was just listening, that was just on repeat, usually like once or twice a year. Nice. At certain times of the, yeah, certain times of the year. I know sometimes I'm like, I feel like I just need to listen to some tool right now. Yeah. Certain things never let you down. <laughs> I have a 30 minute drive to work and I can listen to two songs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I can enjoy every minute of it. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah. Um, you may have already answered this, but I'm going to do it anyway. What's a what's a hidden talent that you have that maybe not too many people know about? Hidden talent, I would say, is DJing, turntable DJing. Mm -hmm. I used to. It reminds me just because I know here in Baltimore, I used to drive up. There's a there's a. I used to go to a record pool, drive up from DC to Baltimore once every couple of weeks to a place called DJ City and pick up records by the. <laughs> you know, this is in. 2007 2008 yeah, yeah, yeah and come back and carry them around and so I, yeah but that's definitely something like a craft that i was i i, I still have the itch for just because um uh -huh. and what's one of the reasons i it all kind of circles back together one of the reasons why i really like tool you know the the drummer is, is incredible yeah um probably one of the only ones who actually i think recently they just did a cover of one of Russia's songs for Neil Pert and everyone who responded, they're like, this is one of the only drummers that can ever do that because yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Um, and so, you know, but so I've, I've always loved just sort of drums and rhythm and, and also, you know, tool that he, now he plays like the, he plays like the drum version of the tabla and, and I'm Indian. So I, I've just that Western and Eastern rhythms and just rhythms in general have been very 
very um, I've loved them. So when I was when I was DJing and understand turntablism, a lot about it was just rhythm and and counts and you know scratching the turntables and I was not nearly as good as I could probably some of the great ones, you know, obviously, but, um, uh, I think to do it at all requires extraordinary talent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Personally. yeah, I, I definitely learned it at, a, I would say probably like a, you know, an amateur to intermediate ish level, um, before I, you know, I, I walked away, but I still get the itch. I still love it when I, when I see a video on that comes in my, you know, YouTube about it. Or if I, even if I've gone out every once in a while, when I get to go out once a year, you know, on New Year's, maybe <laughs> that's about the only time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a whole art in itself. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's that's something I still miss to this day, and you know I still have an itch for, and I love. Well, lots of do-it-yourself tools available to us these days. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. You should maybe give it a shot. Uh, I sold my equipment like 2010 or 20. I don't know, 2012. I had all this equipment at home, probably like three thousand dollars worth of real turntable equipment. I sold it all because I was like, you know, what am I going to do with this? And we have a son coming, so I need to. I need the money. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I but hear yeah, you. I'm the itch is always there. The interest is always there. Well, that's good. I mean, that's that passion. The fact that it's still there, I think, is an, an important part of just being alive. You know, maintaining that. Maintaining that desire is good. It keeps your sanity. I mean, just you know, just having that outlet, as I said, you know, earlier, that creative outlet. You yeah. need to have something. I mean, it doesn't matter. Any any hobby that's slightly different than what you do, you know, during the day. Although I would argue that many argue UXers argue that their outlet is their work, especially with design and you know, sometimes the creative aspect of that. Sometimes people it just fuels people in itself. But yeah, for me any kind of two different things just because mine's research heavy and science very sort of scientific and i need i need something totally just with no rules yeah <laughs> you know? yeah of course of course that's that's why you know that's why i make noise in in my basement oh yeah yeah reason. yeah you know garage band and i are, are really good friends oh yeah yeah uh, at this point <laughs> if i ever if i ever actually release any of this uh we'll see but it's it keeps me sane you know it really does i would love to hear it's whatever your, some of your stuff even however even rough drafts you know I'm, I'm i have said that I, I i made myself a promise that this year i'm actually going to put some of it out yeah i'm going to build a little little tiny website and just sort of throw it out into the world and see it's what about happens. time you got the audience and i'm sure maybe at least half of the half of them you know <laughs> you know love you know d- different forms of music and rock and yeah i mean yeah you know and, and it's they're they're rough sketches so i don't know we'll see yeah just right. we'll see I'll, I'll get over myself and do yeah, it <laughs> yeah you should i uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna be uh, hopefully a nudge for you definitely do it <laughs> okay all right i appreciate that all right last question um, unfortunately, but it's, I think it's a good one to end on. And that is what's the most valuable lesson you have learned at this point in your life. And it doesn't have to be work. It could be anything. Most valuable lesson that you can't please everybody. And I think for most of my career, even up until recently, um, sometimes I, would, I think I would try too hard to please everybody. And I think, yeah, as we talked about it, you know, a lot of it's part of our job. You know, you have to talk to different people inside an organization in your life, your friends, your, your wife, your wife's friends, your the cousins you don't really hang out with all the time that you see randomly. You know, I mean, it's it's uh-huh. you cannot please everybody, and you should be okay with that. And that's a, a personal lesson for me that I've applied both in my personal life and professional life because you know I didn't believe it for many many years. You know, the whole the whole saying is if you try to please everybody, you please nobody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would, I would argue that till I was blue in the face, you know, and say, no, you know, there is, you, you have to, you got to try to please everybody. You got to be in the middle. You got to be the intermediary. You know, you have to be, but, but you can't, you can't always do that. Sometimes you just got to, you, you got to pick sides sometimes. Yep. And, you know, a personal example is that everyone says, you know, something that your wife says and something that your mom says. <laughs> and you know, and you know, you happy wife, happy you know, happy life, happy wife, happy right, wife. right. So it's you, you can't try to please both, and I've 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 tried to do that in my personal life and try to please everybody, and uh, you end up kind of just pissing everyone off, you know, at at a five out of ten level, and this is not fun. Yeah, <laughs> from work wise too, it's just you cannot. You have to pick your battles. You have to you know pick sides sometimes, and you have to run with it. 
you know, it's okay to, you can try to start pleasing everybody, but don't make that your creed and don't try to live, live and die by that. And that's, that's something I would say, it's probably been the toughest personal challenge for me, just because I've always been that that's kind of inherent in my personality, but it's a lesson that I'm often reminded of and it, it goes a long way. And I, I, I think it, it holds true. And that by no means mean that I've, I think I figured that out because I'm still, I'm still trying to figure it out, but I think it's a big, it's one of the biggest lessons that I've you know, personally had to learn. Yep, and I think it's a good one. Yeah. It's a good one. And it takes a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not quite there yet. I'm thinking I'm like maybe five out of 10 there. You asked me five years ago, I was not there at all. And 10 years before that, I was, I would argue against it. That's right. No, I'm telling you, it's a work in progress. I'm, I'm 51 and I'm still working on it. I mean, it's, it's certainly been a, a upward trajectory, but yeah. Yeah. You know, nothing is easy and nothing good, nothing good or valuable or really tremendously useful is ever easy too. So I think that's okay. Totally agree. Yeah. Rajiv, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I truly enjoyed every minute of this. And like I said, if, if neither of us had any plans for the rest of the day, <laughs> yeah, we just keep going. Right. right. No, I mean, really, Joe, the, the, the pleasure is on uh, totally on this side of the microphone. I truly appreciate it. Humbled and, and, and appreciate it. It's been awesome. Absolutely. Well, I wish you a uh, an excellent rest of the week. I wish you much success always. You too. And you too. Uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Have a good one. You too, man. That wraps up this edition of Making UX Work. Thank you very much for listening. And I hope that hearing these stories gives you some useful perspective, some encouragement. And I certainly hope that you remember that you are not alone out there. Whatever you're dealing with, someone else has been there. And just like you will, they have found a way to make it work. Before I go, I want to ask you to please check out our sponsor, Stash Studio. Once again, a streetwear clothing brand focused on quality products with a positive message, inspired by the resilience to turn a negative situation into a positive outcome. Visit stash.studio to learn more. I also want you to know that you can find links to our guests' social media profiles, websites, and other things that they have accomplished by visiting givegoodux.com slash podcast, where you will also find links to more UX resources on the web and social media, along with ways to contact me if you're interested in sharing your own story here. Until next time, this is Joe Natoli reminding you that it is people like you that make UX work. <laughs>